Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson. Got the uh, legendary Jimmy Lee with me. So, just got done recording this episode with Joe Martindale. And as I say, in there someplace, I still don't understand the Idea Rod Trail Invitational people, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. I like talking to her. So this is part two of a three-parter with the uh, three finishers of this year's race. Peter Inman coming up shortly. So be looking forward to that. Uh, got a couple other people uh, sort of lined up after that, and then um, we'll figure it out. I, I may go to a interesting people format for a while. Whether, regardless of their uh, adventure racers or racers, or so, I know some people that I'd love to just chat with on here. So we'll see how that works. Mm, waiting to see in a couple of weeks uh, if any of our local races will go off. Hopefully, the Gold Rush Grinder Gravel Grinder. Um, they'll be deciding that on May first. Um, I think probably will. That's my feeling right now. So, you know, come to the Black Hills, ride 70, 100, 200 miles, hang out with me, get your picture taken. And uh, Black Hills 100, it's the end of June, so I think that's looking good. And then, um, of course, I'm trying to pimp out uh, Norcia and Portugal a little bit, end of September. It's like, might be the first adventure race that happens the calendar this year, so... Uh, Look into that if you're really wanting one. And, uh, yeah. Hey, if, maybe if I can talk enough teams into going, I'll make sure I get to go. I'm supposed to, but nothing's a done deal yet. So, um, anyway, that's it from here. Uh, just got a thing uh, looking at um, the uh, Jason and Ben racing. What are, yeah, their uh, virtual AR software. So, maybe... Uh, setting up some virtual races around here. Heck, maybe we'll have everybody come out here in uh, July or August and could do a race. Let's see. Let's see. So, hey, I still have the Primal Quest maps. Anybody want to come out and redo Primal Quest? So, uh, yeah, we'll find something fun to do for the rest of the year. So, anyway, let's uh, hear what Jill has to say. Let's go fast take chances and uh thanks for listening bye hello there we go hi how's it going jill how are you good how are you um good having a little audio technicalities and i'm not sure well i know why but i got it fixed now (laughs) more (laughs) more or less (laughs) so yeah so i um change you're the first guest in the new podcast studio, which means I got a new desk and somehow in hooking up everything. And it's not quite right, but it works. Okay. <laughs> It'll be fine. You'll get it. Fi- I'm sure you will. You'll get it figured. Yeah. The most important is people can hear you, and that's all that really matters. Cool. Is it, um, is it just uh, audio or is it visual too? Just audio. Uh, sweet. Cool. So I don't need video then. No, no, it's, uh, yeah, nobody, they might want to look at you, but nobody wants to look at me. (laughs) I, um, I was just talking with, uh, um, with a friend and I was like, oh, I hope it's not a visual thing because like, it's been all day. So it's like, uh, but no, that's perfect. Cool. Yeah. So, um, boy, like I got like a bazillion questions and I'm not even sure where to start. But uh, I guess, tell the people who you are. <laughs> uh, my name is Jill Martindale, and I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, yeah. And you spent a few <laughs> days in Alaska. A handful of days in Alaska. Um, I was on the I Did a Rad Trail Invitational, or, uh, wait, let me start that over. Um, <laughs> it took uh, 22 days seven hours and 30 minutes to complete the I did a rad trail invitational from Knick to Nome. 
uh, I just, <laughs> I, I, even after talking to Casey and, and, and knowing something about it, it just, I just can't wrap my mind around it. <laughs> I think there's still days where I don't quite believe it myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. It just kind of feels like a dream already. Like it was hard and I definitely did it. Um, but some days I just kind of feel like a normal person again. So it's, it's funny that it hasn't really set in yet. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I know you're lying because I don't think you ever feel like a normal person. That's. <laughs> I just, I just get that feeling, that vibe. <laughs> I just feel extremely lucky a lot of the time, and then the rest of the time I feel like I'm just kind of like fumbling my way through, and then <laughs> as I go. <laughs> yeah. So, we're gonna just jump around because I, yeah. I, because that's the way I am, and. Perfect. How does a Nice girl from Michigan end up doing the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Um, there was an Iditarod volunteer uh, outside of Ruby that asked me the same question, and I just immediately started to cry. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Um, I don't. I don't know. It, uh... <laughs> I so, love camping and I love riding my fat bike in the winter. So um, winter ultras just kind of became like a like an obvious thing for me. Um, and I love the winter and I love the snow. And Alaska's always been kind of like the last wild frontier. Mm-hmm. And I've just always been really drawn to it. I really love Alaska. It's it's a lot like Michigan, but on like steroids. Yeah, I, I <laughs> get that. <laughs> I don't get the snow part. I'm even though I'm in South Dakota and, you know, we don't get a lot of snow and cold, but I, I'm not a big fan. Lived here all my life, but not a big fan. So, so okay, let's, we'll go way back. So how did you get, what did you do before you fat biked and camped in the winter? Um, so I actually, I still rode my bike. Um, so mm-hmm. I started working in a bike shop in 2011 and that was how essentially I started racing or when I started racing bikes. But before I worked in a bike shop, I played roller derby. And I, Sweet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was the more an assault girl. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. We'll, we'll keep going, but what's your uh, derby name? Uh, oh, I was the Morton assault girl. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Number 12 for the grand Reagan roller girls. Nice. I've got some roll. I've got some roller friends and some done some videos and some photos. So oh, awesome! Yeah, yeah, it was a super fun sport. Um, but I tore my I tore my ACL, mm-hmm. and so that's what got me into racing bikes because I couldn't do the full contact for a while, but I was able yeah. to ride a bike. Um, so that's what got me into racing. But truthfully, um. My parents have always been big on camping. Like instead of going to Disney World for school, vaca- you know, summer vacation, we would go. Mm-hmm. And before I got my driver's license, my dad uh, got it in his head that we were going to ride from my parents' house, which is outside of Detroit, Michigan, all the way up to my aunt's house, which was up by Traverse City. So it's it's under 200 miles, but we would split it up between like five days. And we would ride our bikes up there, and my mom would follow in the SAG vehicle. Um, and we were on, like, really crappy bikes and, like, blue shorts. <laughs> and just, like, it was really uncomfortable. Um, and I used to hate it. Uh, but it kind of stuck with me, I guess, because, I, I mean, I forgot about riding bikes for a while. I got my driver's license. And then when I moved out to Grand Rapids, I didn't have a car for a while, so I commuted by bike. Um I was a pedicab driver for a little while in downtown Grand Rapids. <laughs> um, so it just kind of, you know, fixed gears, pedicabs, and then I started working in a bike shop, and then I could afford, you know, a nice touring bike. And then I wanted to ride mountain bikes because I was selling mountain bikes, and I thought it was silly because Grand Rapids doesn't have any mountains. <laughs> but I was wrong. Mountain bikes are really fun. <laughs> yeah. And uh, fat bikes are super awesome. Um, I think, yeah, fat biking is definitely my favorite kind of riding. So 
I mean, when you were camping with your parents, were you winter camping or was it, you know, just, was it fairly hardcore? Um, at the time it felt like it was, <laughs> <laughs> but we stayed primarily on pavement. Um, mm-hmm. we took roads that have, you know, a wide shoulder. Sometimes we were on gravel roads. Yeah. Um, I didn't really get a taste of mountain biking until, uh, until after I started working in a bike shop. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was usually yeah. in the summertime, um, just because that's when we had, you know, the time off school. Yeah. So then what, what makes you think, well, heck, probably camping in the winter's fun. <laughs> I don't know. I love it. It's, uh, we, so my husband, Dan, um, he's a big camper too. Um, so it's our tradition Christmas Eve to go out camping. Um, we've got a couple of friends that go with us now, but we just try to go camping any weekend that we've got free and in the snow is just always really fun to play around in. Um, so it's just always been kind of, I think it, it, it more so happened, um, after I moved to Grand Rapids. Um, mm-hmm. my parents, like they had a big kind of canvasy giant style tent. Um, but yeah. never, my mom, like she drives in the summertime with the heat on in her car. So we never really went for camping when I was younger. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like your mom. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's got the style. <laughs> so when you start winter camping, I mean, how long does it take before you get it pretty dialed? I mean, how long did you spend being out there freezing before um, you got all this stuff <laughs> figured out? I think it, there's definitely a learning curve. Um, I remember just wearing layers upon layers of clothes the first couple of times that I went camping. And um, when I rode my bike around Lake Superior in 2012, um, I definitely didn't have a warm enough sleeping bag. So then um, we had to stop at a camping store, um, like a big box store, and I bought like, this fleece liner. And then we stopped at thrift stores, and I bought as many like wool articles of clothing that I could find. Um, we we kind of looked like homeless people. Yeah. Uh, but we just took as we got as many layers as we could to stay warm. Um, so I definitely learned from mistakes. I made a lot of them, and I still make mistakes. Um, but at uh, Tuscobia, um, it was actually January of 2015. I keep thinking it was December of 2014. Um, but at my first Tuscobia, I wore, like, a pair of chrome knickers, which are designed for bike commuting. Mm-hmm. And they definitely, like, got soaked and then they froze and I just wore like wool leggings underneath and had way too much bulk um on my bottom half but somewhere along the way I somewhat dialed it in um so yeah I guess my first winter ultra was 2015 and now five years later um just through trial and error and making mistakes um I feel really confident with my bike setup now and what I had out for the thousand miles in Alaska. Well, I, I, I would hope so. <laughs> We're going to get there. Um, yeah. but what's, what's the biggest mistake you see people making? Like, you know, they're come to their first like winter ultra. Um, so I think there's, there's two, like I see a lot of people, um, not have, uh, their apparel dialed in. Um, yeah. so a lot of times, People will overdress, um, and you actually your body, ex, you know, spends a lot of energy pedaling a bike. Yeah. So, so I usually try to start pretty chilly, um, or if I'm riding my bike and I have to stop for something, I've got a jacket that I can quickly grab and throw on, and it keeps me warm. Um, so I see a lot of people. Uh, overdressed and then you get sweaty and then you get cold and that's when you're, you know, in a rough spot. Um, and then I also see a lot of people not quite figuring out their tire pressure. You know, that bike tire. So if you've got too much air pressure, 
and you're in soft conditions, you're going to have a really hard time. So yeah. I think it's a learning curve for the clothing, but then also a learning curve for the tire pressure and being able to handle in, in soft and sloppy conditions. Yeah. When in doubt, let it out, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, hey, I ne- I'm not – so my background, I used to be, you know, a cyclist many years ago before I got into the media side, but uh, my wife my wife is into it. So there's two fat bikes and I don't know how many other bikes in the garage. So I I, I get to, I get it, but I don't get it. So, <laughs> um, okay. So like I said, we're going to jump around. So like on the ITI, how many times a day are you changing clothes and or changing air pressure? Um, the tire pressure we got pretty lucky with this year just because the conditions were either firm for maybe three days. (laughs) Out of 22. (laughs) Or it was pretty soft. Um, so I had pretty low pressure. I usually go by feel, so I I don't Mm -hmm. know exactly what PSI off the top of my head. Yeah. If I had to guess, it was probably, I don't know, maybe around three or four mm-hmm. on um, But I would say, I don't know, a handful of times every day, uh, just yeah. because usually uh, at first in the morning, the trail's a little bit firmer, and then midday, once it's warmer, it's it's softened up again, so you'll let some air out. And then in the evening, it starts to firm up again, so you'll put some in. Um, sometimes if you're on, like, a river, it'll be softer versus if you're in the woods, it'll be firmer. So it just kind of depends where you're at. And can you just – I mean, you're, are you just riding along and, and you just can feel it and you're like, yep, I got to let, let a little out or, you know – yeah. Put a little in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. And then sometimes you'll just, you know, go around a turn and all of a sudden the snow conditions are totally different than what they were. Yeah. So, um, which is worse riding in, riding in real marginal where you break through once in a while or hike a bike? Uh, <sighs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, hike a bike. I mean, it, it depends. Is there wind? Is it raining on me? <laughs> what else are the conditions like? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough to choose, really. Um, I think it's really fun when you are able to ride, but we yeah. had a few days where it was very flat lighting, and the sky and the snow were pretty much the same color, so you had to focus really hard on where you were pedaling. Um, and just follow either the rut ahead of you or try to follow, like, the, the sled dog team marks. Or if there was a snow machine ahead of you, try to get um, kind of in a good spot uh, where you were able to ride. Um, so that was really mentally exhausting um, mm-hmm. versus hike-a-biking was a little bit better because you could talk more to other people or I sang a lot to myself. Um, (laughs) You can look around a little bit more. You can, you can eat when you're hike a biking. Um, So I would say hike a biking is maybe a little bit easier than riding. Flat, light, soft. Yeah. Soft where you're going to break through. How much joy do you get then on those days where it's like, froze up and you can just ride. Oh man. There was a day uh, going through the Caltech Portage where it was just like a beautiful day and we were on really flowy, fun snow machine trails and the trails were like my favorite riding condition, which is where it's like firm, but there's a little bit of like crusty slap on the top. So like around corners, you're kind of skidding a little bit. Um, so it was kind of it was my favorite riding conditions for sure. Yeah. I think Peter and Casey both had a really good time with it, but we were just like hooting and hollering and like laughing and riding as fast as we could and having a great time. Um, so that was really amazing. That was one of my favorite days. Yeah. Does that how how long then? So you get that really nice day. How long does that? Uh, I don't want to say keep you motivated, but sort of keep you motivated for those crappy days that come. <laughs> Does yeah. that feeling last for a while, even after it gets bad? 
I think so, because um, yeah. there's always a little bit of hope that you might have a day like that again. Mm-hmm. So. Gives me a pace. Yeah. All right, let's move back now. So you started your first ultra, winter ultra in 2015. Mm-hmm. So walk me through the next five years. <laughs> so yeah, so the first year I did the Tuscovia Winter Ultra. Um, at that time, it was 150 miles. It mm-hmm. 160 miles. So it's 10 um, But it's on a rail trail, so it's not difficult. Yeah. hard. Um, it's hard to just continue to pedal without any coasting. Um, but it's a really great beginner winter ultra um, because it's nearly impossible to get lost, um, which is great. Um, but so after the Tuscovia winter ultra, the next year I got into the Arrowhead 135. Mm-hmm. So that is in northern Minnesota. Um, so I did the Arrowhead 135. In 2016, 2017, is that the year that I did? Okay, so 2017, I went and I did JP's Fat Pursuit, the 200 mile. Yep. And that was the really cold year that only one person finished. It was not me. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I got three flats in negative 47 degree temperatures. And I had to... Like, I had a problem with my tire trying to seat on my rim with it, trying to get it with a hand pump. Um, it just wouldn't yeah. get over. And then the sealant or something kept puncturing the spare tubes that I was putting in. So I DNF that year. Um, yeah. But I went and did Arrowhead that same year, the 135, um, and I wound up setting a new women's course record. I think I was just like so motivated after that pursuit yeah. that I just really, and it, I, I mean that year it was perfect conditions at the Arrowhead 135 too. So I got really lucky with that. Um, and then the year after that I went to, so 2018 um, I was the first woman to finish the 200 mile fat pursuit ever. Um, and that was the same year that um, Kelly Nelson and Missy Schwartz also finished. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe any woman has finished the 200 miles since then. Um, and then the year after that, so 2000, oh wait, no, 2018. Yeah, so then 2018, uh, that same year after Fat Pursuit, did the 350-mile ITI. Okay. So did did, was this a conscious plan to work your way up, or did it just happen? Uh, yeah. So I, after t- my first winter uh, ultra at Tuscobia, um, I set my sights on the 1,000-mile ITI. Um, even though, I mean, like, I finished the 150, and I was completely miserable and drenched, and as soon as I hit pavement, I started to cry. Uh, and it was like really anticlimactic at the finish line because like no there except for Dan, who was my boyfriend at the time. Yeah. Um, so I don't know why, but, uh, I just really wanted to get out into Alaska and to do the thousand mile to Nome. Yeah. Well, this is, see, this is where we get some adventure racer crossover because almost every good successful adventure racer goes to that first one and, and just gets hooked like that <laughs> and there's probably nobody at the finish line except their family <laughs> so, yeah. um so the jay's the fat pursuit why is that race so hard i mean in some ways it, it look to me that you know i know people that race it you know and i and i know that you know people do the the arrowhead and stuff and but jay's seems like it's really really hard it's hard. It's, um, you know, it's in an area that's just, it's remote and mm-hmm. the snowmobile traffic, um, is not, I don't know, like this is just an, a guesstimate on my, on my half, but it's almost as if, uh, Tuscobia and Arrowhead both see so much snow machine traffic on those trails mm-hmm. that the trails that Dave Peterberry has us do for fat pursuit are a little, maybe a little bit less traveled. Yeah. 
but there's such a variety of conditions out there too and, and so many different types of trails like there's groom single track and then there's a snow machine trail and then you ride through parts of you know the the outskirts of Yellowstone um, so it's just a, a ton of different styles of riding um, and then a lot of elevation like two top was rough it just went up for forever and it, it, I mean, it can be as cold as, yeah. you know, northern Minnesota, northern Michigan, so. And at least, yeah. like, um, in Alaska, at least the conditions that I've become familiar with, um, you know, we would see one temperature at night, like, the coldest I think we bivied in Alaska was negative 45. Um, but at Fat Pursuit, you might see, like, 30 degrees in the day and then, like, negative 40 at night like it's just all over the place there doesn't seem to be like a rhyme or a reason to it and and i'm guessing that for you it i mean i don't even like saying the word negative 45 but that's almost probably better if it just got there and stayed there <laughs> yeah you can get used to it <laughs> yeah well and then and then you when it gets that way then do the conditions kind of just stay the same everywhere it's not warming up and melting or when what I noticed um, or what I've noticed is that when the temps get when they drop that far below zero the snow starts to um, like lose its firmness um, and it mm. almost gets a little it gets a little soft in those conditions sometimes yeah. but it depends so on what the yeah what's the perfect temperature then but I mean, let's let's kind of let's talk ITI. Yeah. So what's what's the perfect temperature for okay. snow conditions? My favorite temperature is uh, anything like zero to maybe like ten or fifteen degrees is my favorite riding temperature. Um, and I think that's the type of snow that gets firm, um, mm. but it's not like. It's not like white pavement because there's still a little bit of like a dusting of like crunch to it. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So if you're riding and say it's 10 degrees, what are you wearing for clothing? Uh, so what I wore in, in that temp range, and I usually ride with a little uh, thermometer on uh, like the cockpit of my bike. Um, hmm. So like I'll strap something onto the front so I can kind of keep an eye on it. Um, is that uh, I'm going to interrupt you? Is that because it makes it easier to judge what to put on, so you don't, you know, if you see the temp coming up, you start you take off before it gets warm, take clothes off. <laughs> yeah, so I have um, okay. I have like a tried and true kind of um, like what works for me outfit for different temps, um, but also mm -hmm. I try to keep an eye on um, on the temperature for tire pressure as well. Because um, sometimes you're kind of in the zone or you're not thinking about it or you're thinking about a million other things or there's wind blast. Yeah. Um, so if I see that maybe it was 20 degrees and now all of a sudden it's 10 degrees, um, then I'll stop and put some air in my tires. Um, and then I might adjust what I'm wearing. Or if I see that it is dropping and maybe it's getting below zero, then I'll preemptively stop and maybe put on like my nose hat, uh, which is this covering for your face that keeps you from getting a frostbite or I'll mm -hmm. put, um, I use the Joshua tree winter stick, which is kind of like a chapstick for your face, but it helps prevent windburn and it helps to prevent frostbite as well. So if I see that the temp has dropped super low, um, then I'll stop and kind of preemptively take care of those measures. Um, and then on the other side, if I see that the temperature is rising, then I'll either stop and let tire pressure out or before I get too sweaty, I'll, I'll take some layers off. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I would imagine if, if you're riding and, and exerting, you, you probably for a long time stay, feel like the temperature is staying the same. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny cause it's like, sometimes you notice that the temp has dropped below zero. Mm -hmm. Um, and then other times, you don't, but you'll wind up being like really sweaty and being like, oh, what's going on? I'm working so hard. You'll look and see, oh man, it's over 30 degrees. Yeah. Which is, yeah. So, yeah, the second half of ITI, we saw a lot of warmer temperatures. Um, yeah. 
but in uh in, oh sorry go ahead no you talk people want to hear you <laughs> <laughs> in uh in 10 degrees usually i'll wear yeah sometimes it just drops out oh weird that's okay does yeah. that work well still? and what yeah, and what I've learned is when it drops out is to hang up and call back. It usually works. <laughs> so, um, all right, so you're telling me what you wear in 10-degree weather. Yeah, so in 10-degree uh, weather, I've got uh, – I wear my wool socks and then a wool base layer on my bottom. Uh, I actually wear uh, – instead of bike shorts with, like, a chamois, I use the Segoy uh, bun toasters. It's just like a, a fleece line with some windstopper, like on the butt area. <laughs> um, so I don't like to use a chamois in the winter time, just because it's a lot of fabric that yeah. is against your body and, and is wet for a long time. So I like to dry as fast as possible. Um, so I've got the bun toasters, the wool base layer, the wool socks. Um, and then this year I brought with me a Patagonia air capillene base layer which dries so freaking fast um mm. so one of those and then my notvin my 45 north notvin jacket um or if it's if it's if it's softer conditions um then i'll wear the 45 north torvald windbreaker jacket over top of that patagonia layer so it's not a ton um for like that yeah. degrees but since you're pedaling and moving, it keeps you warm. Um, and then for my gloves, usually in 10 degrees, I like the Nokens, which is like a windstopper, merino, kind of like a shoulder season glove that 45 North makes inside of my pogies. Yep. Um, and then I'll wear a buff around my neck. Um, usually I've got that winter stick that I rubbed and just smeared all over my face. And then um, my greasy cap. Yeah. And then, so it's not a lot. Yeah, it's not a lot while you're mm-hmm. riding, but how? Um, oh, and then I do wear, I use the Wolfgar, the 45 North Wolfgar boots. Okay. Um, which I have had so much good luck with. Um, I've never, I mean, knock on wood, um, I've never yeah. had frostbite before. Uh, and I think it's because I try to stay on top of hydration and nutrition. Um, and then I've got the right layers and stuff like that. Yeah. So how long do you, when you stop, what's, I'm not sure I want to put this, but if you stop for 30 seconds for something, do you, do you put on a jacket or, you know, if you're going to be stopped for a minute, how quick do you put on extra clothes when you stop? Kind of make it a habit of um, putting it on as soon as we stop. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes if I know it's just going to be a quick stop, then I I just won't. It probably takes about a minute before I start to get a little bit chilly. Yeah. Um, But again, it depends on what temperatures and um, like what conditions. So if it's like, you know, really cold and really windy and snowy and blowy, then I'll Mm -hmm. just reach for an extra jacket right away. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so when you went to the to the three fifty, what what did you learn that you didn't even know? <laughs> I mean, you you know, when you get into something like that, people say, "Well, you don't even know what you don't know." Yeah, uh, it was it was a lot of learning. Um, so I this is me from five years ago is totally mad at me right now um, for what I'm about to say. And I think I might make a lot of my friends kind of angry, but uh, I was vegetarian when I did the 350. Um, Mm -hmm. I was vegetarian for 15 years before this year. Uh, I was was vegan for eight of those. But um, at the 350, I just had a really hard time uh, staying full. Um, cause I mean, I, I tried taking a lot of my own food with me and making my own like dehydrated meals and stuff, but you roll into a checkpoint after riding for like 20 hours and they have cheeseburgers. <laughs> and, and so like, I, yep. you know, in the 350, I, I, I still ate vegetarian. They had salmon burgers and Nikolai and I 
I, that was my first salmon burger. I had three of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I finished and I was just so hungry. I just felt so empty. And then at every checkpoint that you go into, although in Rome they do have veggie brats, which is amazing. Um, yeah. But I just felt like, A, you feel kind of rude because you decline the food that these people offer you. And then B, you're declining calories and then you're spending more energy making your own food or you're trying to stay warm off of snack bars when they've got like warm soup and a checkpoint. Um, So I decided after the 350, um, I was going to try to start eating meat a couple of months before the thousand mile um, so that I could kind of get my gut used to it. Yeah. Um, And then I also, I took a hydration pack in the 350 and my back got really sweaty um, and I was just kind of like uncomfortable with it. And I was just thinking about my hydration pack a lot. Um, So going into the thousand mile this year, even though it was definitely a lot more weight on my bike, I wound up taking like insulated thermoses um, and then no hydration pack so that I was able to play with my like core body temperature a little bit easier. I could manage it. Or if you got really sweaty and, and you dried off, then you didn't have a sweaty pack to put, you know, back on back. Mm-hmm. Body. Um, so those I think were the two biggest things I knew going into the thousand mile that I didn't want to have the hydration pack. And that I wanted to eat meat. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, let, let's not say that there's not vegetarians in Alaska, but yeah, I could. I think you walk in, you walk into some place 800 miles in the middle of nowhere and they get cheeseburger. That's yeah. going to be hard. I think if you're mentally prepared to just kind of be on your own um, for a lot of things or, or carry a lot of dehydrated meals with you. Um, mm-hmm. You can definitely do it, but there was something really great about like, I mean, food is such a, a good bonding experience. So there was something yeah. about rolling into the Iditarod checkpoints and there's a huge vat of moose stew like on this wood stove and being able to eat it with the mushers was pretty, like, it was a really special experience. Um, yeah. I don't regret it, but like past Jill would be really mad at me right now. hey you know what you're gonna ride a thousand miles through the alaska wilderness in the winter time you got you got enough things to think about (laughs) you know other than other than pulling into the checkpoint and thinking oh gee i'll have a cliff bar instead of a cheeseburger like uh they gave us they fed us think uh king crab and ofer which was just delicious it was the first time i've ever had king crab and it was or uh yeah they had moose chili and uh in white mountain there's just no way that you could roll up to one of these places and be like do you guys have any any vegetarian options have some yeah do you have any can i have a kale salad (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um so after you do the 350 do you feel confident that you can do a thousand miles? Um, yes and no. Uh, so the three fifty definitely gave me a taste of the of the full trail. Um, but the thing that I ran into when I when I did the three fifty was that I I felt very. I mean, it feels anticlimactic the same way that any winter ultra kind of feels anticlimactic because there's not a big of like hoopla, you know, going, going on at the finish. Um, but with the 350, when I finished it, there were a couple other thousand milers that were still at Peter and Tracy's house and they were all talking about continuing onwards. And so for me, when I finished the 350, um, I was a little bit unsatisfied because the trail doesn't stop in McGrath. The trail stops in Nome. And so yeah. I was sad that I had to stop before the trail was done, you know? Yeah. That's uh, almost kind of exactly what Casey said. Oh, really? Was it? Yeah. Is this, yeah. It was sad. Yeah. Almost exactly. So. Oh, I, um, I purposely did not listen to Casey's interview yet because I okay. didn't. I didn't want to um, 
I don't know, I didn't want to copy him. Yeah. <laughs> well, and to tell you the tell you the truth, we haven't hardly done anything the same. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, um, other than he said you wake up at minus 45 in the morning and you had a smile on your face, what's that all about? <laughs> Me? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was so mad that morning. We, uh... Like, <laughs> oh, maybe it was a grimace. Maybe uh, no, I was fine. I I was happy. Yeah. Um, so whenever whenever you bivy out in negative temps, I think there's yeah. always just like a feeling of relief when you wake up because you made it through the night. <laughs> You're not dead. <laughs> and we were so tired when when we were put making that push, uh, just because we were. We were completely exhausted, and we thought the cripple checkpoint would be a lot closer than it was. Um, so we were pushing to this checkpoint in negative temps in the dark at nighttime after, like, a long day of being on the trail, and we just had no idea how close this checkpoint or the shelter was. And uh, we were kind of, like, zigzagging all over the trail because we were, we were kind of falling asleep while riding. Um, I had the most epic crash uh in that stretch because we um part of the trail did it had this dip through like a little creek bed and then kind of climbed up the side of the bank and my bike was so bottom like back heavy that my front wheel came up and I basically just like flipped over onto my back with like the bike still on top of me <laughs> but I was so tired so I just started laughing and we just kept so I woke up and um, we made it through the night, but I had taken off my sleeping bag because my toes were just starting to get cold. So I took my, my boots off so that I wouldn't have like a wet kind of, you know, in, encasement on my foot. Yeah. I crawled out of my sleeping bag in the morning. My boots had froze, even though they were inside of my sleeping bag and inside of my liner and inside of my vapor barrier sleeping bag. Um, so I was trying so hard to cram my foot inside of this like frozen boot. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen to me before at a winter ultra. I just did not want to have to deal with it. So I was trying to like smile and act like everything was fine. <laughs> I didn't want, like I didn't want to worry my newfound friends um, and make them think that I was ill prepared. Uh, <laughs> for you know the whole trip because I, w- I wanted to yeah. stick with them like I like I really yeah. liked them at the, I mean I like them more now that I'm I know them better but at that time um I think there's safety in numbers and I'll try to buddy up with people in a winter ultra if if I'm unsure of what the conditions are going to be or yeah or if it's that cold out I you know there's just strength in numbers so I woke up and, and Casey's all got his stuff together and He's packing, and I'm trying to just, like, act like I'm cool. <laughs> it's fine. I'll get my foot in this boot. Don't worry. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> It'll all work out. So so when did the when did the three of you, you know, hook up together on the trail? And, and I mean, was it a – did you – was it a conscious decision for every – to ride together, or how did it – how did it come together? I think the magic of it was that it just kind of happened organically. Um, so uh, we all made it to McGrath at different times. Mm-hmm. But once we were at McGrath, we had to wait for the trail breakers to break a trail all the way to Cripple, which wound up being like 20 miles further than we thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, I mean, that was our fault. So we were looking at Cripple, like the village on the map. And the Cripple checkpoint is named after Cripple, which no longer exists. Yeah. But it's past the te- or it's past the village of Cripple. So we didn't realize that. We were just all naive and looking at the old village on the map. Um, so anyways, we had to wait for the trail breakers to get to Cripple. Um, and then we, so we all left McGrath at the same time. And we left with uh, Juicy K, who was our other friend out there. Um, And so the four of us took off together and we all kind of 
stuck together for a little bit, but then my knee was, I was having some issues with my knee. Um, my legs essentially just got tight and uh, I had gotten blisters on my feet from all the hike biking earlier in the race. So from all the hike biking and the tight legs, and then trying to like, I don't know, walk different because of blisters on my feet. Um, my knees yeah. just got really tight and started to hurt. So I kind of dialed it back a notch. Um, and I would stop about every hour and just kind of massage my legs a little bit, kind of loosen them up, and then hop back on the bike after stretching and pedal again. But it was hard to go up some of the hills. Um, so they drifted away from me. And then uh, we got to Takatna, uh, the village center had like an unofficial Iditarod checkpoint um, that they were just setting up for. So the guys all stopped and got a burger and like refilled up on water and everything. So I rolled up to Takatna about the time that they were leaving. We kind of hung out for a little bit uh, and then they took off and I ate my burger. <laughs> and then uh, I wound up catching them at Ofer it was another Iditarod checkpoint, but since the sled machine or since the, the sled teams weren't coming through yet, the people at Ofer let us stay in this like heated wall tent with electricity, and that's where they fed us king crab and cookies. It was such a cool spot. Um, so I caught up with the guys there, and we all slept in this wall tent, which was just it was a lot of fun. It was like a big slumber party because all four of us were there. Um, and then the next day we took off together, but kind of spread out again. Um, and Peter and I got to Ruby a little bit after Casey. Um, and then in the morning we took off and Casey got to Galena before we did. Um, and then after that point, conditions were so soft and there was so much of a hike a bike um, that we kind of wound up riding together. And then we got to Elam, and it was the same thing. We had to stop and wait for trail breakers again. We got up to the top of one of the peaks of Little McKinley, and there was this huge sled team traffic jam. Um, since it was a new overland, overland route, because all the sea ice had broken up, um, they ran a new trail, and it, it got lost. Um, the sled teams at Elam 11 uh, and all the trail breakers and then the three of us we all turned around and went back to Elam and then the next morning left again um, it, was just, it was all pushing to White Mountains um, so at that point we were all organically like the three of us we had lost UCK uh, trying to think it was before Cripple the actual Cripple checkpoint we stopped to, to rest a little bit longer um, so we left first, and then I left, and then Peter. Um, so we all just caught up with each other, and ZCK never caught caught us. Um, yeah. So then in Golovin, um, which was after White Mountains, uh, in Golovin we were all kind of eating dinner and talking about a bunch of other stuff. And Peter just kind of flatly said, all right, so what are we doing? <laughs> How are we going to do this? <laughs> and by that point, you know, we had spent so much time together getting to know each other and working together that it just, I don't know, it, it just, it made the most sense and it just felt right uh, to continue yeah. words together. Yeah. So <clears throat> while you pass the test, cause that's, you told the same story. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm excited about. I uh, yeah, I, I wanted like I I almost listened to Casey's interview so many times, and I was like, no, I'm gonna listen to <laughs> yeah. it afterwards and be excited if we say the same thing. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this is a really dumb question, but what's what's the emotions like when you cross the finish line? Oh, it was definitely not what I thought it was gonna be. Um, there were so many times out on the trail where I thought about making it to Nome and I would just start bawling. Um, or I mm. thought about when I got home and I finally got to see Dan and the dogs, uh, I would just start crying and like collapse. <laughs> and I'm not like a crying type person, but just being exhausted out on the trail, like 
there were times when like I would look around and it would be so beautiful and I would just start to cry or I would, you know yeah. or the weather would be horrible and I'd cry or I would think about <laughs> getting home or finishing and I'd cry but uh when we rolled into Nome um it was kind of like a feeling of relief because we had finally finally finished um because of the coronavirus and the villages shutting down there were a handful of things that we thought we weren't going to be able to finish. And because of this, yeah. out, because of this, the storm surge, everybody else being pulled from the course. So there were so many different times. Um, but rolling into Nome, I was just really, I was happy. Um, and then a little bit sad because I knew that the trip was ending. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have that uh, extra 650 miles to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Or just like, I mean, you know, my, t my time of being out there and, and, you know, having the simple times of the trail of just like waking up and going and then eating and then drying your gear and sleeping. Like it's all, it's just very systematic, um, yeah. simple out there. And, and I knew I was going to have to come back home. <laughs> um, okay. So you come home to a very weird situation was it easier or do you think it was harder coming home and, you know, being in a quarantine? There were a lot of times that I used coming home as like a bright spot when I was feeling really down. Um, so like I decided I wanted to get like a pedicure. Uh, <laughs> I've only ever had yeah. this before, before my wedding. <laughs> but uh, like I talked myself into getting that or I kept thinking about how excited I was to go on a bike ride with some of my friends um, to go get, like, you know, a beer, or I was excited yeah. to come home and see all my coworkers at Velocity. Um, so I was, I was definitely using those like carrots as like things to keep moving and keep pedaling towards. Um, and then getting home and having to kind of self quarantine. Like I didn't leave the house for fourteen when I got home. Um, wow. and everybody was like the Barry Roubaix, the world's largest gravel race got pushed back to the fall. And, and I was hearing of all these other races being canceled and still like there's events that are that's supposed to happen this summer and I'm hearing of them getting pushed back and it's just kind of crazy. Um, but also in a way the trail I think prepared me for this, um, because I'm used to shelf-stable foods and um, yeah. I'm used to not seeing people and I'm used to not talking to a lot of people. Um, but it is hard uh, because I'm used to like moving all day long. So if I wake up in the morning, yeah. I sit in my pajamas and like it took me a long time to wake up before 11 <laughs> time, which I think is because of the yeah. I was so like sleep deprived. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Um, when you, you guys probably don't get that hungry usually on the trail. Cause I always ask adventure races, which, what's, what do you want more sleep or food when they finish? <laughs> and it's usually about 50, 50. So, ah, uh, food, always food. Okay. <laughs> I can sleep when I'm dead. Give me the food. <laughs> there you go. So, um, all right. So we're going to start wrapping up here, but this is just one thing that I really fascinates me. And I want you to explain how you get everything there. Cause in adventure racing there, there's TAs where you have, you know, you have a bin and you got to pack, you know, you get to the race and you got to make sure the right stuff's in the right bin. Mm -hmm. Ex explain how you guys do it. <laughs> so um, I'm really lucky in a sense that I have been able to collect so much gear. Um, yeah. Just every winter, you know, I add to my stockpile. Um, so I fit my fat bike in the Evoc Extra Large Travel Case, um, which fits my wheels, my tires, my frame. Um, but I flew Delta, so I had to have my bike case under 50 pounds. Yep. So it's essentially just my extra small salsa mukluk, uh, with my wheels and my tires. Um, and that's it in the case. Um, mm. and then I've got a second hard case 
And I'm sure like a ski duffel bag would work too. Um, but I throw, um, I've got to put my rear rack in the hard case. Um, so I can't even have my rear rack installed on my muckluck in the Ewok case. It'll, I think it's like a, a pound. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, we've all been there. Yep. Yeah. So in my second bike case, um, I throw all my camping gear. So my sleeping bag, um, all my dry sacks, a lot of my clothes. Um, so that was under 50 pounds, just barely, by like half a pound. Um, so I've got two hard cases full of gear and then a hiking pack, which is usually my carry-on. Um, yep. And that's full of just a bunch of extra clothes and stuff like that. Um, I did mail a box to the Inlet Motel of just extra food because I didn't want to have to get to Anchorage and not be able to go grocery shopping and find all the all the snacks that I'm used to. So I mailed a lot of my own food to myself. Um, and then you've got to mail yourself drop boxes along the way. Yeah. So I had um, the I did a Rad Trail Invitational sends three of your drop boxes um, to three of the locations in the first 350 miles or, well, two of the locations in the first 350 miles, and the third location was that cripple checkpoint. Um, so I mailed I mailed a box with three drops in it, and they got those figured out. Um, but then I also mailed myself um, a drop to McGrath, which had some extra food. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was seven different villages. I alternated between a small drop and a large drop, just kind of depending on what the distance was and how much food I put in it. I tried to pack about 10,000 calories per drop bag. And um, (laughs) originally, my goal was to finish the 1,000 mile in 16 days. I wanted to set a new women's course record. Yeah. Um, But because of the slow conditions, we just weren't moving that fast. So we wound up being able to raid um, our friends' boxes who had dropped out of the race. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. so I, I, ma- like, I mailed a lot of stuff to myself and then also just lugged a ton around the airport. And then after I said it done, I wound up actually mailing 20 pounds of dirty clothes home to myself. Because <laughs> I just didn't want to, I didn't want to pack them. It yep. stank so bad, um, and then I also didn't want to have to carry it around the airport <laughs> like with carry-on. So, yeah, I just mailed it to myself. So, well, <clears throat> we the post office might not like you, but I think that was a wise choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think so too. Like I just immediately opened the box when I got like it got here about two weeks after I got home. I opened <laughs> it and like dumped it into the washing machine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so how soon after you finished did you decide you were going to do it next year? Uh, we joked, we joked about it. Um, we joked about it a lot on the trail. Uh, and then I, I got home, um, and like told my husband, oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But then it's kind of whispering to friends, like, oh, I'd love to go again. (laughs) So. Um, I don't think next year, um, if I went next year, I think it would be the 350 mile, Okay. which is still an amazing race. Like I just, yeah. I know I said before, I love Alaska. It's just such an amazing place. It's so magical and beautiful and like tough and hard and brutal, but it's a great place. Um, so I, I would love to go again. Um, it would be my fourth year in a row going up to Alaska. Last year I did the White Mountains 100. Um, but with the whole coronavirus, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. If it's, I don't know. If it's it, going to be a weird year. We'll see what happens. We'll see if the villages yeah. recover. Um, we'll see if they need to. I really hope everybody in the villages stay safe. I hope nobody up there gets gets anything bad. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Someday I would love to do the southern route, um, but it just, it's so much mental, logistics, uh, time off work, time leaving, you know, my husband home with the dogs, uh, time missing my friends. So it's a a lot to mentally prepare for. Um, 
So we'll see what happens. We'll see where I'm at. Yeah. Okay. So just a couple of more. How much, and I guess you can't really say faster because that's so condition dependent, but how much better, easier do you think it would be the second time? Um, I love surprises and I love like discovering things. So for me, the first yeah. time of something is usually like the most fun just because you're okay. experiencing everything for the first time. Um, but I think there is a lot of value um, to knowing where the shelter cabins are at and what kind of conditions the shelter cabins are in. Mm-hmm. So Peter was amazing to ride with uh, because it was his third time going to Maine. And yeah. so, you know, in my notes, I would have a shelter cabin coming up and I would be like, let's just sleep here. And Peter had the knowledge of like which shelter cabins were like the nicest or which ones had, uh, you know, smaller camp stoves versus like the big wood stoves or which ones were typically stocked with wood. Um, so it was really cool to have his experience out there. Um, so I, I think now that I've done the thousand mile and now that I know a little bit more of what to expect, um, better in a sense, um, just because you, you know, you know, you know, what the shelter cabins are going to be the best or not. Yeah. So. All right, just we're we're getting there, but as is there anything on your schedule for the rest of the year that hasn't been canceled? <laughs> um, well, depending on what happens in the state of Michigan, um, my husband and I are planning a couple of bike packing trips um, okay. and bike fishing trips. Uh, so I just got a brand new salsa wrestler today. I'm really excited about it. It is like the most bike I've ever had. It's super squishy, you know, full suspension. It's 150 mm-hmm. in the rear. And, uh, he's got a full suspension, uh, as well. So we're planning to go just kind of play around and have fun, um, and just explore an adventure a little bit and, I'm hoping to get a little bit better at my handling skills. Um, yeah, we're, I don't know. I, uh, all the races I was planning on doing, aside from, you know, Margie Gessick is still scheduled for September. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. And then I put on a women's only mountain bike race called Skirts in the Dirt uh, with my friend Julie Whalen. And that's in August. Uh, we haven't opened registration yet. We're just kind of waiting and see how everything, you know, winds up going. Um, but that's always a really fun event too. And that takes a lot of time planning and putting on a race. Um, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll, okay. we'll see. I mean, I purposely left my schedule after I did a rod open, um, just because I wasn't sure how it was going to go what I might need afterwards, what like the mental recovery would be like. Um, so at this point I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens. Yeah. Well, we're getting there. Yeah. We've got mm-hmm. our 200 miler here that they're going to decide in a, a week or so. So yeah, yeah. the Lumberjack 100 is in June. So we should know or know soon if I'm going to be doing that. Yeah. So, Cool. All right. Last question. Um, what kind of wheels did you ride? Oh, I ran. Uh, so I, I had the head aluminum uh, 80 millimeter wide rims, and I was super jealous of the 105 millimeter rims that both Casey and Peter had. I thought they had a little bit more flow and control over some softer conditions. Um, so if I were to head out, or when I do head out to Alaska again, um, I may try to get a little bit wider rim. Um, but I had my rims raised up to the velocity fat bike hubs because obviously I've got, I've got to bring something for you know? <laughs> get, a good, get a good deal? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Important <Yeah>. discount. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so I, I like I, I like the wheels so much I married, married the guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, so... 
I ran the velocity hubs with with uh, aluminum rims, um, and my thought with the aluminum instead of carbon um, is really silly. But I just thought if if something happened and I dinged up my rims, I could yeah. maybe try to like ding it back out. Versus if it yeah. was carbon, it would have broken. Um, but I didn't yeah. have any issues at all with the rims or the hubs. Um, and then uh, I ran studded Dillinger 5s, which I was incredibly happy with. So, nice. So, okay, I don't understand you guys any more than when we started, but... <laughs> I don't think I we find understand it... ourselves. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, I get adventure racers because that's I've sort of been there, but I don't know. I really like I really like what you guys do and like talking to you. Oh, thank you. It was fun to talk with you, Randy. Thank you. So good. So it took us a while, but sometimes that happens. <laughs> but it's always worth it. Yeah. It'll be cool. I'm excited so, to go listen to Casey's interview now. You can. So. <laughs> and I'll this'll be this might be out tomorrow, if not oh, Thursday. Sweet. Cool. Awesome. Because I got a lot I got a lot of people who are like we need an episode. We don't have anything to do. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs this. So thank you. So. All right. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good night. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye. I know this guy. He's all wrong for me. He wears shirts that are tripping on LSD. I must be high as a guy on diesel fumes. He's got me sporting Seventy-two refurb. Go to the fights in your Camino.